Definitely Baby would like to acknowledge the land on which we recorded and shared these stories. The Waramai Nation, the Darug and Darkanyung people, the Wadawurrung, the Gulenjung and the Gadabunad nations, and the Wurundjeri Willem and Boonarong peoples of the Kulin Nation. This land on which we live, work and learn always was and always will be the land of the First Peoples. Welcome to Women's VBAC Journeys, a segment within Definitely Baby's VBAC mini-series where women share their VBAC experiences with us. The episodes will share a mix of stories from women who've had VBACs, home births after caesareans, VBACs after two caesareans, as well as a few women who planned VBACs but ended up having awesome and empowering repeat caesareans. I'm so honoured to hear and share these beautiful stories with you all today. Knowledge is power and there is so much power in sharing and hearing stories of how we give birth. I know for me, birth stories have been such a fundamental resource in both my preparation for my first birth and on my VBAC journey. The stories in this episode are truly magical and I know that you're going to love listening. Let's get into it. first guest in this episode is Rachel, who shares with us her VBAC journey in a public hospital with a fragmented model of care. I'd just like to quickly acknowledge and give a quick content warning before Rachel shares her story, as in it she discusses some language and wording that providers used in her first birth that was quite coercive. So I just want you to keep that in mind and proceed gently. Here's Rachel now. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands in which my story takes place. I pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging of the Waramai Nation on whose land I'm recording from today, the Garigal clan on whose land my first birth took place and the Awabakal people on whose land my second birth took place. Hi, I'm Rachel. Um, I live in Stroud, New South Wales, which is a small country town um, about three hours from Sydney. And in my family, we have my husband, Matt. I have a three-year-old, Connor, and um, a 12-week-old baby, Eleanor. Could you tell us your about your first birth, your first caesarean? How yes, was that experience so, for you? Um, I, we conceived in uh, the end of 2019. Um, and gave birth in 2020, so right in the middle of COVID. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a pretty uncomplicated pregnancy. Um, we, I was in the um, just fragmented public system. I didn't have a clue what an MGP was. I uh, would have loved to be <laughs> an site, but I didn't know any different. Um, yeah, but went in pretty positive uh, into that pregnancy. So we only really had a little hiccup at 37 weeks um, when they requested that I do a growth scan because um, I was measuring quite big in my fundal height. So I said yes <laughs> and um, Bub came back with head in the 99th percentile and about 90% um, overall, which uh, surprise, surprise, was very wrong in the end. <laughs> so we got all the baby scares, which uh, was a big factor in the cesarean birth, um, and then didn't have a big baby. <laughs> um, yeah, so this kind of led to the first talk of induction 
at about 38 weeks, which I declined. I was still feeling healthy, um, but I ended up being induced at 41 weeks um, and it failed. <laughs> so induced with the gel, didn't work. They weren't able to break my waters. Um, and at the end of that sort of 24-hour period, um, I got offered a C-section in case I was just over it, which I was kind of <laughs> horrified. The doctor said, um, oh, they literally said, oh, I've got a couple of hours till my shift ends, got nothing on. If you want to have a C-section, you can. Oh, my God. I am glad that I knew enough to say no and a lot of people in that vulnerable state might say yes. Exactly. Um, So we ended up going home after that. So I went home for a couple of days, did all the labour dances (laughs) that didn't work. Um, (laughs) Ended back a few days later being induced again, this time with the balloon. And, uh, yeah, after that, they managed to break my waters. We started the syntocinin and it just went from zero to 100 pain-wise. So um, I was planning a, a drug-free, you know, very active labour. That was my plan but um, ended up with an epidural and it was, it was that classic cascade of interventions, you know, epidural, stuck on my back. I managed to dilate fully and I managed to push for an hour, which was great. Um, but then I think I hit that, you know, that time frame, that uh, failure to progress in, uh, you know, inverted commas. Um, yeah, and the doctors kind of came in and, yeah, this is where another pretty awful comment was made by an obstetrician. So um, because we'd been told we had a big baby because of that growth scam, the obstetrician started talking about shoulder dystocia. And the a doctor said to me, um, you know, we're really worried that your baby is going to get stuck and if your baby has shoulder dystocia, we have to cut you from top to tail, we'll have to reach oh in, we'll have to break your baby's collarbones and pull oh them. Gosh. Um, gosh. And then they said that, you know, not only is that traumatic obviously for you and your baby but it's traumatic for the whole surgical team and we don't want that. So oh we want to have gosh. some. <laughs> I can't believe that. That is fucked <laughs> and I mean what mum would say no to a c-section in that moment of, yeah. of course of course you would say yes and you know looking back like yeah I'm horrified that that comment was made mm. at, at the time I, it's kind of only processing it in hindsight that I realized how coercive that was now that so I've learned um yeah and and they kind of talked a little bit about fetal distress but since looking at my birth notes, I think there was one incident of um, a D cell in the heart rate. There really wasn't anything consistent. Um, but we went off. We had the C-section. It wasn't a Category 1, so it was kind of all slow. Um, it went well. He came out, Apgars of 9. He was happy, healthy. Um, yeah, so so the C-section itself was okay and recovery was all right. Um, uh, and I requested a debrief from the surgeons while I was still in hospital, um, which is really important. If you have a C-section, make sure you do that. Mm. And um, in that debrief, uh, debrief, I asked about um, future pregnancies and births. And this is important in my VBAC journey when you, you hear the second part. But um, I asked, you know, would I be suitable for a VBAC? And the surgeon said yes. I would be. So I was like, okay, I think the same as you said, like sh- I was straight like, right, next birth is going to be a VBAC. Like I fully dilated. It's a really good sign. Um, yeah, next one's going to be a VBAC. Yeah, so um, I decided to wait like the full, I wanted to have two years in between, give myself the best chance to have a successful VBAC. 
um, yeah, so fast forward three years and just 12 weeks ago, I had a beautiful, empowering, drug-free, pain-free uh, VBAC. And uh, so that's sort of the second part of, of this story. Um, yeah, so in between, um, I think when I fell pregnant is when I sort of dived right back into all that um, education again. So I think I was quite well informed the first time around, but you only know what you know. You don't know what you don't know, right? And the VBAC world is kind of a a special little bubble where you just learn so much more about yourself and birth and uh, the system and everything. Um, So I listened to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast. That was probably my... um, Such a good one. Yes, and I'm really big on research and stats and the way that they talk about risks, that just really spoke to me. I I like looking at statistics. And I think their first episode came out when I was just, I just fell pregnant. So for Mm me it was, and then there was almost 40 episodes out by the time I was full term. So it was very Mm -hmm. easy for me to listen to one episode a week and absorb that information slowly and and help make my decisions. Um, So that was a huge factor in my education um, VBAC stories on podcasts, the VBAC Facebook page, um, and I also read um, Ina Mae Gaskin's book, Spiritual Midwifery. I'm not sure if you've mm-hmm. read that. Though. Yes, I read that with my first. Yes, Bob-bom. and after yeah. reading that, it was all like, wow, birth can be beautiful and birth can be life-changing and I want that. <laughs> I want that, yeah. yeah. And first I thought, like, these women are crazy. How did they <laughs> Um, but I was determined that I, I was going to try. I was going to try to have a birth like that. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so I desperately tried to get into a midwifery group practice and I wasn't able to get in. I think, you know, there's waiting lists for every single one. So that was kind of my first emotional hurdle. Um, but when that didn't happen, I realised that I just had to build my own birth team around me. Um, so I hired a doula. We had a beautiful student doula called Alison and oh, she was incredible. She'd had VBACs herself and she was really, uh, really helped me to empower myself with the decisions. Um, and then I got a student midwife too and she, Deb, was amazing as well. She was advocating for us as well, which was, which was awesome. And my beautiful husband, Matt, he came to every single appointment with me. Um, the hospital was about an hour drive for us. So it was the only time we didn't have our toddler. We would talk through everything on the way there, listen to a podcast episode <laughs> um, and chat about it all. So having those three in my team, I think, made all the difference when it came to uh, achieving my VBAC, having that team around you um, to support me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in that process I made this epic birth plan and um, mainly using the stuff from the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, like the evidence-based stuff that they talked about is what helped me make my decisions. Um, and then accepting that if any, if there was any medical reason, then things might change. But this was my ideal. If everything was going well, this was my ideal plan um, and if things had to change, they had to change. But this was, this was the, the golden birth plan. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And, yes, I was in the public system again and just through the, the fragmented care, um, different midwife every week um, sort of system. Yeah, so, again, pretty uncomplicated pregnancy. I was healthy and well. Um, and again, 37 weeks, we hit our first hiccup. <laughs> mm. So 37 weeks was the first time that I saw an obstetrician, which is quite late in the pregnancy, but I was determined to just be under midwifery care. But you kind of need to get that green light when you're going for a VBAC. You kind of need to get the tick of mm. approval from the 
nutrition, especially if you're in um, the hospital system because the midwives are kind of working under them too. So they also need to give you that green light. Um, yeah, so I I wasn't fussed on having that uh, on having that appointment, but um, went in. That was my first appointment with my birth plan, ready to go, like this is my birth. And the obstetrician looked at my previous birth notes, which I hadn't seen before, and right at the bottom, almost like a footnote, it said, not suitable for VBAC. Oh. And uh, I went, we even checked to make sure that they were the right notes because I was like, what do you mean? Um, yeah, they literally told you you, were fine. you could have a VBAC. I'd ha- exactly. I'd had that debrief after with the surgeon, but um, a different surgeon wrote the notes to the surgeon who did the debrief with me. Right. Um, to be honest, the notes were really sloppy. There, you know, there were lots of errors through it. And I was saying, you know, was this just a drop down box and they ticked the wrong thing? Like, what's going mm-hmm. on? Um, but the obstetrician went through the notes carefully and the only thing she could see was that it said that I'd had um, what they call a midline tear. So when they had done the C-section, um, they'd been tearing away from the incision. So right. I managed to get her to tell me that that was kind of a surgical error, um, probably caused by surgical instruments, you know, holding the wound mm. kind of torn to the side. Um, yeah, so... That obviously slightly increased that risk of rupture, um, yeah, which, which was a big curveball for us because it was something that we didn't know about. And, yeah, so she had to say that she had to recommend a C-section based on those notes. Um, and, yeah, I, I was kind of in shock and um, asked her a lot of questions and she told me that my risk increased to like 4 to 9%. And, you know, you've just had an episode talking about the risks of rupture and um, mm. there is nowhere that says that that risk can be that high, even with special no. Yeah. Write, write it down for me so I could research when I went home. Um, so we, yeah, left that appointment, um, yeah, in a bit of shock and, and having to go home and, and do a bit of thinking about it. She was like, oh, you know, go home and think about it and when you come back we can book in a C-section. And I said to her, I'm 37 weeks pregnant. I don't have time to think about this. I could go to labor any day now. Um, and I kind of ended up saying to her, look, I'm still committed to this feedback. I've done a lot of preparation. I'm still committed. And I sort of asked her point blank, like, will you support me to give birth in this hospital? Um, there's, uh, yeah, <laughs> there's mm-hmm. another hospital that's um, the same distance from our house, another hospital that's a big tertiary hospital, um, which is a lot more willing to do these more riskier um, okay, VBAC yeah. because they've got a 24-hour surgery where this hospital was smaller and they didn't have that 24-hour surgery. Um, and the only reason I hadn't gone to that bigger hospital was just that the other one was my local one. That's where I got referred. So it didn't really bother me to change. Uh, so I ended up asking for them to transfer me to the other hospital. Um, the ob- obstetrician did say that she would support me. She said she trusted that conversation that I had had with, you know, in that debrief, which was quite good actually. She couldn't officially recommend a VBAC but she would support my decision is what she said um which was good um yeah but she did you know she did talk about the risk of death and the risk of your baby dying and um I think a lot of women hear that on their VBAC journey mm-hmm. it can be quite triggering obviously and so you know we went home from that and I remember turning to my husband Matt and just I said to him you know 
are you scared? Like, do you feel scared after that appointment? Because it's not just me birthing, you know, it's your wife and it's your child and it's both of us. And um, he said, yeah, he felt really scared. And so I said, well, we need to unpack this because mm-hmm. if you have PR, I didn't really feel particularly scared. I don't know how to explain it, but, but I didn't. Um, I said, if you feel scared, like we can't go into this physiological birth that we want if we're carrying fear, you know, fear is that, that blocker of oxytocin that you don't want. So we jumped into, you know, research world, which we both love, and just tried to find anything that talked about this increased risk of 4 to 9% of rupture. And surprise, surprise, we could not find anything. Um, we, we looked at the uh, RANS-COG guidelines about VBAC, the, you know, obstetrician's guidelines. Everything was still pointing to me being a suitable candidate, even with this potentially higher risk. So we just decided, well, transferring to this bigger hospital was how we would, um, you know, lessen that risk. As you know, as as your your first guest said, even those women who do rupture, the risk of a catastrophic you know, emergency is still really low. And if we were in that hospital, you know, we would have the emergency care there if we needed it, which I trust, you know, we're so lucky that we have that emergency care and emergency C-sections when it's necessary, of course. Yeah, so that was one week where, you know, in those last few weeks of pregnancy, we had to kind of reevaluate everything. But, um, yeah, we decided that we felt really, really safe. Um, so the next step was we had two appointments with two obstetricians on the same day at the two different hospitals. <laughs> and um, I think this is the really important part of my VBAC journey for me. Because I had made my birth plan, we had decided the risks that we were comfortable with, not the risks that the hospital was comfortable with, not the risks that the policy talked about, um, what we were comfortable with. We went into that appointment, you know, ready to to ask the questions and then tell them what we wanted. Um, which I've been a bit of a people pleaser in my life. So it was uh, really powerful to advocate for myself. Um, but, yeah, the first appointment I I made sure that I asked them to tell me about the risks of repeat C-section because that's not something that's often mm. done. And I'd already, I'd already had them all written down, you know, I'd already done my research. But um, she told me them all, told me all the risks again of, of VBAC, and I just said really clearly and calmly, you know, thank you for telling me about all those risks. I'm more comfortable with the risks of a VBAC, not the yeah. risks of a C-section. And I think for, um, for for people listening on this journey, it's all about what risk you are comfortable with. You know, 1% for one person might be high and for another person it's low. So you have to decide what you're comfortable with. And, and I think when I told them that, you know, and I was speaking their language, you know, you've done your job, you've told me the risks, this is my decision. Um so then we went to the second appointment at the other hospital and um, a beautiful student midwife, Deb, came with us to both, which was amazing. We had that support and, um, yeah, we had to go through it all over again and, um, yeah, this doctor, he was a bit funny. He he kind of got this impression that I was coming in with this, you know, awful birth trauma and this fear of birth and because he looked at my birth plan and it was, um, you know, um, no cannula on arrival, no CTG, um, you know, freedom of movement, you know, all the things that they want you to do, I was say, saying no to. Um, and so we kind of talked about that through. He started talking about the very, very real risk of death. And I actually cut him off and I said to him, I'm very aware of the risks and it's extremely low. 
and I don't appreciate the way that you're amplifying it um, and I'm not going to talk about it with you. And he was kind of taken aback because people don't <laughs> question yeah. that. And um, he actually apologised. So being, you know, sometimes what you say, him, I hope he went home and thought about it, you know, thought mm-hmm. about it. You know, because they have to tell us the risk. You have to understand that. They mm-hmm. have to tell you that risk. But you have a risk of death every time you get in the car. You have a mm-hmm. risk of death in every everything that you do, in, in the C-section, in everything. You can't let that talk of death scare you because that's, for them, it's just doesn't mean anything. That's the world that they live in, right? Um, yeah, so... He said that, I cut him off, and then he was like, okay, I think I need to get my boss to come and talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the head obstetrician uh, came in. She sat down and went, now I can tell that you've got a lot of birth trauma. And I was like, no, I don't actually. And she was yeah. like, oh, okay, well, um, I've got a lot of fear coming into this birth. And I went, no. I don't actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have the opposite. I said I'm feeling really empowered about birth, which is why I'm making these decisions. Yeah. And then she said, well, you know, do you understand what a rupture is? Do you understand the risks of a uterine rupture? And I said, yes, I do. I'm very well informed. Thank you very much. And uh, so she said, well, what are they then? What's the first signs? <laughs> she was like testing me. Um and, yeah, you know, I told her that it was a, an increased heart rate for me, an increased heart rate for Bob, um, and I said, but most of the time it's the woman saying that they don't feel right. You know, you can tell when your heart rate's increased. You feel like you've gone for a run. Um, and so I told her all these things and she was like, oh, yeah, that's right, like you do know. <laughs> I went, oh, thank you. <laughs> um, and there was just this moment actually where she turned to the uh, other obstetrician who was, I think it was a registrar, so a bit more junior than her, and he just, I don't know what conversation they'd had in the other room, but she just said to him, this woman is clearly informed and has made her choices. We're going ahead with VBAC. <laughs> and oh, my gosh. Basically just said to him, put her back with the midwives in midwifery care and we'll see you in labour. And Great. that was just this like, oh, my gosh, I've now spoken to four obstetricians and clearly told them you know I proved to them that I knew what I was talking about and that's what's really important you have to be educated enough because doctors are you know doctors are incredibly intelligent and so they don't like being questioned you have to you have to sort of prove that you're on their level speak their language you know they're all about mitigating risk that's a doctor's job so when you talk about it being the risk that you're comfortable with um yeah, so we left that appointment being like, yes, we're going ahead with VBAC, uh, it's all good, and next appointment we'll be back with the midwives, and I didn't need that appointment because I went into spontaneous labour. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, so that birth, uh, first stage happened really quickly, so my waters broke, I think within, and I was 39 and 4, um, within half an hour my contractions were like five minutes apart. Like it was just going. Yeah. We live over an hour from the hospital. So okay. <laughs> um, it was middle of the night, which is kind of good with my toddler. It meant that he was asleep. We didn't have to um we didn't have to worry about that. But yeah, called I wasn't gonna call the hospital because my waters broke and my fluid was clear and so I wanted to give myself more time. I was just gonna go back to sleep. But it all came on really quickly. So, you know, called my doula, called my student midwife, called my mother in law to come over finally called the hospital (laughs) 
and uh, yeah, and off we went. So it was, um, I put the TENS machine on straight away and I had a birth comb and yeah, we went in the car. It was uh, a tense trip for Matt driving. (laughs) (laughs) I was using horse's breath as well to keep me relaxed, um, breathing through the contractions. And by the time we got to the hospital, my contractions were like two minutes apart. Um, So yeah, it happened really, really quickly. And yeah, went up into birthing and um, my doula set the room up to be nice and quiet. She put a sign on the door saying hypnobirthing, do not disturb. I wasn't really doing hypnobirthing, I kind of was, but she said, again, that's language that they understand. So put that sign on the door and people will respect it, um, which was great. And so, yeah, I think after like a, another hour, I was already ready to start pushing. Um, and it's it's crazy in this time I wasn't feeling pain. Not one thought went through my mind about do I need the gas, do I need an epidural, whereas when in my induction it was just I'm in pain, I'm in pain, I'm in pain. What am I going to do? I don't want drugs. How am I going to deal with this? Where that wasn't, I was really calm. I was breathing. Um, Matt was doing hip squeezes every contraction. I kind of had a checklist so, you know, I'd feel a contraction coming on. I'd press the boost button on the tens. I'd grab the comb. Matt would do a hip squeeze. I'd do horse's breath. And by the time I went through those steps, the contraction was over, um, which was really good. And, yeah, so we um, – I didn't really go through transition. I was kind of waiting for this transition that you hear when you have your physiological births. And um, I think I vomited and then I ripped all my clothes off. So I think that was my transition. But I didn't have that, um, you know, the doubt creep in, which was wonderful. Um, Yeah, so I started pushing, I think I was on the floor, like on all fours. And at some point, um, I think there was a little bit of blood in in my fluid. I didn't know any of this. I was like so in the zone that I had no idea. (laughs) But I think that's when the midwife was a little bit concerned and she wanted just to check. So she got... um, I think the head obstetrician or the team leader came in who was on and she said, oh, no, I'm not really concerned about that. It was only a little bit, like it's all good. Um, But I think they'd already called the obstetrician as well. So the obstetrician came in and, um, yeah, she was like, oh, I think we need to do um, a VE. And I hadn't hadn't had a vaginal exam when I arrived at hospital, um, which is, again, what they always want to do the second you arrive, see how far along you are. Um, but at that point I thought, oh, I'm, I might have a bit of cervix still there and I'd heard about that, you know, if it swells that it can um, prolong your labour. And So I consented to that then and she said I was, um, I was nine centimetres and I had to stop pushing, which was impossible. My body was just doing it. It was involuntary. So, you know, I tried to do the, the panting breath and um, breathe through them all and I, went, I got in the shower and I think after about 20 minutes I was like, I can't stop this. And after a chat with my doula, she was like, why don't we just get the obstetrician to come back in, you know, get that green light because your body's already pushing and I don't want you to be scared that there's still cervix there. So if we can reduce that fear by getting a check, let's do it. So I was like, okay. Um, So we had that and, yep, it's fully dilated, green light, off you go. (laughs) Thank you for telling me what my body was ready to do. (laughs) But then after a very quick first stage, I had a very long second stage. So I ended up pushing for three and a half hours. Um, If you're birthing in the public system 
and having a VBAC, that is almost impossible. <laughs> mm. um, yeah, the, the obstetrician came in and was, you know, oh, we're a bit concerned about this. And um, I was having intermittent monitoring with the Doppler and they were like, we really want to do the CTG. We don't know what's going on. And um, But then I managed to get them to tell me that when they were monitoring, it was good. So I was like, why, why are you worried? And they said, well, we just don't know what's happening when the monitor isn't on. Um, but it was good when it was on. So I told them, no, I'll keep going. Thank you. Um, again, thank you for telling me about the risks. I'll keep going. Um, I think in about an hour, obstetrician came back. You know, you've been pushing for an hour. Your risk of rupture is increasing. Again, thank you for telling me the risks. I'll keep going now. Um, I feel good. So off you go. <laughs> um, meanwhile, Matt was like advocating for me so hard, like showing everybody my birth plan that came into the room, like don't ask her these questions. She's answered them all here. <laughs> Um, I think at about the two-hour mark, um, I, they said that they might have detected a couple of decelerations in the intermittent monitoring, and so I did agree to CTG. Um, and I sort of said to the obstetrician, "If I agree to this, will you be more comfortable giving me more time?" Because um, again, they were talking C-section, <laughs> and she said, "Yep, we can do another half an hour of monitoring, and we'll see how you go." Um, so we did that and then they couldn't get a good read, of course. They were chasing me around the room. Mm-hmm. So I two and a half hours I consented to the scalp clip, which I hadn't wanted either, but at that point I thought two and a half hours of pushing, you know, this baby may well be in distress. Like that is the most stressful mm-hmm. part of the baby and I knew that. Um, so then we had the scalp clip put in and I think after another 15 minutes or so they said, look, we are detecting decelerations, like your baby is starting to become distressed. Um, and, again, I said I, I want to keep going, um, but they were a bit worried. So that was the first kind of serious talk of we need to have a C-section. And um, I said, well, what else can we do? And I used that brain, the brain strategy to ask some questions and I said, what are the alternatives? And the obstetrician said, well, we could take a, a fetal blood sample and that would give us a very clear indication of what Bub's doing. Um, so we, we did that and um, she, yeah, the lactate levels came back really high, so Bub was in distress. And now we're hitting like the three-hour mark of pushing. And so I knew I, I had tried everything. I looked at my doula and said, you know, what else can I do? I had been, beyond doing a handstand, honestly, I had done every position, birth stool, shower, all fours, sitting on the toilet, um, you know, on the bed, off the bed. I'd kind of tried everything, doing lots of hip movements. I just couldn't get her to descend. Um, so at that point when the doctor came in to talk about it, I consented to a C-section, <laughs> uh, verbally consented. And they started doing all the prep work. And you hear these stories about in that final minutes, the baby comes out and, and yeah, that's what happened. So um, <laughs> I, was, I was laying on the bed with my feet up in stirrups, which is not how I wanted to birth. And in the end, that's actually what I needed to, to get her out. So um, I remember this moment, Deb, beautiful student midwife, she looked at my husband, Matt, and they just shared this moment of, something's changed, like the head's coming out. These pushes have changed. Something's different. Um, and so Deb was desperately trying to get the attention of, you know, someone more senior in the room because they were all prepping for C-section. No one was really watching me push anymore. And then um, this, the team lead midwife came in and um, 
you know, she had a look at me pushing and she, I remember she was putting the pressure socks on me and there was someone hovering to put a cannula in and she kind of said to me, look, we're going we're gonna to prep you for C-section but I just want you to keep pushing. Um, you're doing a really good job, just keep pushing. And it was almost like she was saying, we're going to make it look like we're getting you ready but we're going <laughs> to buy you a bit more time, which was funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, she saw me push and, and um, I think um, Bub was crowning and she just kind of took this presence in the room and just said to the doctors, like, this baby is coming out right now. Like, we are not going to surgery. This is happening. Everyone move back. <laughs> um, and apparently there was like 10 people in the room, which I was not aware of because I was so focused on my team. You know, you can focus on your team and not worry about all that medical stuff when you're in the hospital. And, um yeah, the obstetrician then um, urged me to have an episiotomy, which I hadn't wanted, but at that point it was kind of that or C-section. Um, so I made a promise that it would be very small <laughs> cut, which I was, and she came out. <laughs> wow. I was able to have that moment, you know, pulled her up onto my chest and, oh, you know, Matt was just in disbelief and so was I and it was um, – yeah, an incredible moment of, oh, my gosh, I did it. And when the odds were looking like they were stacking against us and, you know, the system was stacking against us, I, um, yeah, advocated for myself. Matt advocated for me. Student midwife ad- advocated for me. And I was able to achieve my beautiful feedback and have my baby girl. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Thank you. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's such a such a powerful story on advocating for yourself in that fragment fragmented care model and it's so yeah. great to hear about how you really armed yourself with all of that evidence and all of those beautiful statistics which yeah I think that this is evidence that it shows that how important it is to do that and yeah good on you and just you know really building up that trust in the birth process, which I think I didn't have yeah. as much this time around, really trusting yeah. everybody knew what to do. And um, oh, this quote just stuck with, the, stuck with me this week, um, B from Corin Floor Restore, who, who's on the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, she said in an episode about something totally different, she said the antidote to fear is education and support. And I just thought if that's not a quote for the VBAC journey, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know what because really you have to overcome your fear of rupture and educate yourself and surround yourself with support. So that's kind of what I've been holding on to now as my main message. Um, yeah, we had a, a successful VBAC in the system as well. Yeah. 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 Oh, I love it. Thank you so much, Rachel, for sharing your beautiful stories with us. Thank you for giving me the space. <laughs> I hope that you loved listening to Rachel's beautiful birth stories. The full version of her birth stories will feature as one of the first episodes of the soon-to-be-launched Australian VBAC Stories podcast. I'll pop a link in the show notes once it's been released, but in the meantime, keep an eye out for that gorgeous podcast. It's going to be incredible. Next up, we're joined by Catherine, who shares her journey to a VBAC at home. So I'm Catherine and I live on the surf coast and I've got two little boys. Wilbur's for Percy is one and I live with my partner Drew as well. Yeah, oh, beautiful. (laughs) And could you be able to tell us about your initial birth, which involved your caesarean section? Yeah, sure. So I was at the public hospital in the midwifery group practice and I guess 
a snapshot of it would be I was measuring a few weeks ahead from about halfway through. I was concerned he was big. I got to 11 days over and his head still wasn't engaged and he was posterior, even though I'd tried oh, so many babies. things to try yeah. and get him. <laughs> yeah, but he was posterior, head not engaged. And so they said I could wait till, you know, up to 43 weeks if I wanted before being induced, but I also was aware that he was really big. Well, they were saying he was big. So I went, I went ahead with an induction. That took a few days, like four days total um, to ripen my cervix and that kind of thing. I ended up with a long labour epidural at the end just to see if that would shift things and it didn't. Ended up, I think, getting to two centimetres like over 24 hours and then I just decided that I would have a caesarean because it felt like he was stuck. So it wasn't an emergency but I just, yeah, I felt like it was the right thing to do even though it was a, the it wasn't what I wanted. And it was a straightforward C-section. So that's kind of Wilbur's in a nutshell. Yeah. 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 Okay, great. Mm. Yeah. And moving along to your subsequent preg- pregnancy, could you talk about how you were feeling about that pregnancy? Did you always know that you wanted to try for a feedback? Um, what kind of steps did you take during that pregnancy to prepare for it? Yeah, so I initially I was it took a couple of months to set in, I think the disappointment. Initially I was just really happy to have Wilbur. He was such a healthy and content baby and so it didn't set in until a bit later on and then I felt pretty disappointed about it. And um I from then on was like, if I'm having another baby, it'll I'm going for a V back. Um so I called um, the birth house from pretty early on in my pregnancy and was linked in with Lisa Giddings, who's a really amazing midwife down here. Um, And I just wanted to go with the birth house just to bypass anything hospital related because I'm not, yeah, I guess I wasn't interested in having to advocate for myself and kind of feeling doubtful or any of that. So I just bypassed it all and went with the birth house. So there were quite a few things. Um, I think it's a bit of a a privilege to be able to have a home birth. Mm. I wanted to acknowledge that. Um, Depending on where you live and how much money you've got and those kinds of things, not everyone offers, not every hospital offers a home birth program. So I think it does make a huge difference if you can have a truly supportive um, provider that does believe in VBACs, but um, I think that's really hard to find. So, but that was huge for me. Engaging with a doula, we had a doula who was incredible, Kelly, and I don't think we could have done it without her because I had another long labour and there was just quite a lot of time before my midwife arrived and I don't know if I would have wanted to transfer in that time to hospital because I was just so exhausted. So Kelly was a really important part of the birth team for us and she just shifted the energy and, you know, even though I'd kind of prepared and knew about all these things I could do in terms of having an active labour. I think I ended up just wanting to stay in child's pose for like (laughs) hours. So she was the one that kind of really encouraged me to get around and move and do rebozo and get up on my upside down on the couch. And so, yeah, having her there was invaluable. I think also internal pelvic release was really good for me. My midwife offered that. I'd been worried about having a really – overactive pelvic floor and whether that had kind of impacted on my ability to 
sort of open up and allow myself to have a vaginal birth. But she did some internal pelvic release and reassured me that I was soft and spacious. They were the <laughs> words she used. And that just sort of took away a mental barrier for me. And I was like, oh, maybe, you know, maybe I can do this. What else? Having an osteo on board and an acupuncturist. Mm-hmm. When did you start seeing them? Um, How far into your pregnancy? Uh, osteo maybe like monthly from about 28 weeks, I think it was. And then it ramped up and acupuncturist the whole way through, oh, wow. like yeah, early on and a bit of a break in the second trimester and then quite a lot in the, in the third. Yeah. What else was there? I wrote them down actually. Oh, yeah, obviously staying fit. I did a friend of mine is um, a – she's got this company called the Pregnancy Posse um, online kind of Laura. fitness program for women. Yeah. Laura, yeah. Yep. And, uh, I love yeah, that. Yeah, great. She's coming on for this series. She's got a episode oh that's coming gosh. up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, so she lives in the same town oh, as wow. me. Um, yeah, and I loved that because it was 10 minutes minimum, like one – yeah, you could just spend 10 minutes on it. So there was no excuse to miss it. I did it every day and it kept me feeling really fit and I needed that for my long labour. Mm-hmm. That was really good. And another one that was really interesting was diet. I had listened to a VBAC birth story about this woman that had the same situation as me with a big baby, a head didn't engage. And so she's like, I, I went on a diet, like not a restrictive one, but just really tried not to have any processed, you know, carbs and sugar and that type of thing. And she had a baby that with a much smaller head. Mm, and um, so I was like, I'm going to try it. And, yeah, my baby, my second baby was half a kilo lighter and had a much smaller head. So <laughs> I think it had something to do yeah, with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think also the final thing was I joined a face, a few home birth Facebook groups toward the end. I actually wasn't on Facebook, but I think in like the last four weeks I joined some because I just needed to hear some positive stories like, I'd listened to podcasts, but I just wanted more and I wanted to ask questions of people that had had, you know, they'd gone to 43 weeks or they'd done something similar to what I was hoping for and it was really, really good to have that community and just be reading so many positive stories about women that really trusted mm-hmm. that the process. Yep. Yeah, so I think they were the main things for me. Yeah. 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 And how about um, positioning in terms of because you said Wilbur was posterior, were you kind of thinking you mentioned your Kelly or doula was helping you in labor to do some rebozo Mm. and forward inversion and things like that but yeah did you do anything in your pregnancy to aim for good position I did so much I did so much but I didn't mention it because I don't think it I don't know I think also I became obsessive about it like I really didn't sit but I sat on a um, a stool, you know, from like 20 weeks on, like I did not sit mm-hmm. back in a dining chair. I didn't sit back on a couch. I was always on my hands and knees every night watching TV. Like <laughs> I was sitting on the football all the time. I was doing everything, but he just did not, neither of them shifted really? okay. from posterior. Mm-hmm. And I, I was, I felt like I did everything I could and maybe it helped in the end. I'm not sure, but mm-hmm. yeah, they never moved out of posterior. So I, I definitely, worked on all of that but it um it didn't really work for me yeah. <laughs> my body you know it's like some women carry breach they just do carry yeah. breech babies and I'm wondering whether there's something about me 
where my babies just sit in that mm, position. Yeah. So, but yeah, of course, like being mindful of all of that maternal. Yeah. yeah I think optimal maternal and all of that is what you call it. Yeah. I think that's really important. Mm. But sometimes I think we also have to let go at a certain point because I was getting a bit obsessive about it. Yeah. Um, that's kind of and, me right now. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. It's, it's easy to do. It's yep. easy to do, but. Yeah. I let go in, in the last couple of weeks and I was like, look, mm. um, if he's not going to be able if he hasn't moved now with all of this osteo and, you know, acupuncture, I'm just going to like, what will be, will be. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's yeah. interesting you say that because I, with my, fir- my first baby was posterior too. Uh, and from, oh, must have been like early, early in the 30 weeks, I was recommended spinning babies and all of this optimal positioning these exercises and everything like that and then um yeah like it just she never turned never in labor and I wonder sometimes I wonder whether that will happen to me too is it just the way that my uterus sits and that's where babies get comfy in there I'm not sure yeah because some women don't do anything Mm. and their babies are in the perfect exactly exactly yeah 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 wow okay and so then how was your VBAC birth um oh, amazing so I it was basically the same situation leading up to the birth as Wilbur's so at 11 days overdue I Lisa offered monitoring in the hospital so I went um and they said I was looking really good so was Percy there was no worries at all about our health but then a doctor came in and said you should have a cesarean today um the longer you wait you know, the head wasn't engaged and he was posterior again. He said the, every, with every day that goes by, um, you run the risk of having a stillbirth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew to expect that kind of comment, but it still just really rocked me. And I said, like, give me to 42 weeks. I'm not going to transfer into the hospital care um, before 42 weeks anyway, but I'm definitely not having a cesarean before 42 weeks. There's no reason to. So he was okay with that. And I just went home and cried for like three hours. And then that night um, I felt contractions, which was, I couldn't even believe it. I couldn't believe it was, I didn't believe it could be possible. Yeah. (laughs) I'd sort of resigned myself. In fact, I was never going to go into labour naturally. (laughs) Um, And so then we called Lisa and she told us to do a couple of spinning babies moves that I think helped the head to drop in. All of a sudden it intensified. Um, and so, yeah, from there I just laboured, called Kelly. Uh, she came over in the morning um, and then laboured some more. Lisa finally arrived and, anyway, it ended up being sort of like into the next night and um, I ended up getting some sterile water injections to help with the back pain, uh, which really helped, um, and that all just kind of dissipated. And I think at that point he must have turned. Um, I didn't have back pain at any point following that. And then I was in the pool and just felt the urge to push. And, yeah, I was the long pushing. I think it was like two hours. Um, I was quite scared of the pressure because he, the sack hadn't broken yet, so it was a lot of pressure. Um, so I took it very slowly. But he came out on call in the sack still and I remember his head being out for like five minutes between contractions and just he was kind of just like turning, looking mm-hmm. around. And I just 
everything sort of felt like it was so quiet and we were all just kind of waiting and I was like on one knee. One knee kind of lifted and one on the face of the pool. And then, yeah, with the next contraction, he just it just he just came out and the sack broke and um, he was just like floating really peacefully in the water. And I think at that point I expected that someone else would pick him up or I just hasn't, hadn't envisaged being able to do all of that myself, but he was just floating there and they're like, pick him up. <laughs> so I just brought him to my nest yeah. and, yeah, that was that. It was incredible. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And how are you feeling in those yeah. moments after he was born? Oh, amazing. I, I reckon the high lasted months, like honestly months. I just felt so um, amazing and yeah, it was it was really um, life changing for me. I felt more confidence in myself, and yeah, it was really special. Yeah, yeah, I feel really mm-hmm. grateful. I also want to say, like, I think it could have easily gone the other way, and I could have ended up with a cesarean. And I just like, I think it's really hard. It can be really unfair birth, and I think you know some things are out of our control, and you can do all the preparation in the world. And it doesn't work out the way you want it. And I feel like that could have easily been me. So mm-hmm. I just want to acknowledge that people that are feeling like, you know, why not? Why not me? I've done everything. Yeah. I just, yeah. I feel grateful, but I, I acknowledge that it could have easily gone the other way as well. Mm, yeah. I think that's yeah. such, such an important thing to acknowledge because, yeah, I think I was speaking to Hazel Keedle in an earlier episode about the language that we use around birth and around VBAC and even terms like VBAC success, you know, like what's the opposite Mm. of success? Failure. And so if someone doesn't have a VBAC in the end and has a repeat cesarean, then, you know, they conflate that with this feeling of failure, which, yeah, is not not a pleasant thing. So, Mm. No. Yeah, I think it's a lot of, there are a lot of factors involved to make it happen. It's not straightforward when it comes to a VBAC or any birth, but VBAC in particular. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And how long mm. was your labour in the end? Did you mention? It was like 28 hours yeah. in the end. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. And then mm. reflecting on your emotional state and recovery journey, how does it compare with your cesarean birth? Oh, they're so different. I think I. Like I was saying, it, it sort of set in a bit later the, yeah, the disappointment after the cesarean um, and and in terms of the uh, VBAC, I was on a high mm-hmm. for months, so they were really contrast. But physically, I think, yeah, I would, after the VBAC, I, was, I didn't tear, I was, so I was quite mobile and I didn't have any pain, whereas with the cesarean, first you ended up being 4.4 kilos and it was just packing on the weight. Uh, sorry, Wilbur, with my cesarean, packing on the weight so quickly. So just that lifting and, yeah, it's just such a hard recovery, I, especially after a long labour. Mm. I found it really tough. Um, interestingly, though, like once I had healed from that cesarean, I was good to go, whereas with the VBAC, um, you know, going for a run even at nine months postpartum, I was kind of like, well, there's, you know, only just starting to feel confident with that and probably a bit later really, okay. like jumping on the trampoline, you know, those kinds of things I didn't feel that confident with, whereas after the cesarean by, you know, nine, ten months I was, I was fine. So 
they were, they were different in that way. So the recovery overall with the vaginal birth, I felt was much better. Yeah. Okay. Oh, great. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. It was so beautiful to hear your story and you've got You've recorded a full episode on Australian birth stories as well earlier this year. So for anyone who yeah. wants to listen to that, I'll pop the link in the show notes of this episode as well. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. For our third and final guest on this beautiful episode, we are joined by Georgia Slee, who shares her experience of a home birth after cesarean. My name's Georgia Slee. I have two daughters. I've got a uh, three and a half year old and an almost two year old. I live with them and my husband in the Hawkesbury in Western Sydney. And I am a birth and postpartum doula as well as the co-host of Australian VBAC Stories, which is a new podcast that we're about to launch, which is um, sharing the stories of um, women who have embarked on a VBAC journey. Mm, yep. Yep. Oh, so excited to listen to that. Could you tell <laughs> us, start by telling us um, your first birth experience uh, in which you had a cesarean? Yeah, sure. So I fell pregnant when I was 26, um, newly married, wanted to have a baby straight away, wanted to have a baby for a long time, actually. Um, finally, husband agreed. After we got married, we'd have a baby. So went into that fairly naive, didn't really educate myself. Um, I sort of had the idea that, um, you know, birth would just happen. Um, pregnancy was very <laughs> straightforward. <laughs> exactly. Um, pregnancy was very straightforward. I had no, you know, health issues. I had a little bit of morning sickness right at the start, but generally felt really well. Um, and so I think that kind of led me to be very, yeah, like naive, I guess, you know, going into like thinking about the birth. Um, I know that I was very impatient as I think you are often with your first pregnancy because you're sort of, you don't have anything else to necessarily distract you <laughs> like another child. So <laughs> very, very impatient. Um, I was due on the 18th of December. So I was really hoping that I would um, have the baby before Christmas. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I had, um, you know, normal standard fragmented care at um, the local public hospital. I actually opted to go for the smaller hospital that was nearby rather than the large tertiary hospital um, just because I thought that would be a bit more of a community feel and um, less sort of like being on a production line, which often is the experience at those big hospitals. Um, and so I ended up being induced for post-dates at 41 weeks with this hospital. Um, it's, and a lot of rural hospitals um, are probably similar, is that you, they don't have a huge um, staff. Um, you know, the postnatal, antenatal and birth suite were essentially all the same staff, which is, I think, fairly unusual. You know, like a bigger hospital will have specific wards, specific teams for each. Um, so they only did one induction a day, they told me. So you can just imagine, obviously, like the level of resources that they had. And they didn't have a 24-hour theatre team either. So yeah, pretty small hospital. I went in for my 40-week appointment and I remember the midwife saying, I can see in your eyes you really want this baby out. So how about we book an induction? I had no idea what an induction really 
meant in terms of, you know, any further than it would just mean that my baby will come out (laughs) when it's supposed to. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, pretty much had, yeah, and um, I do speak about this a fair bit with, you know, people is that I think it's something that is comes up a lot is that people aren't often not informed about what an induction means in terms of, you know, the process, yes, but also, you know, um, in terms of what the contractions feel like, you know, the fact that you're put on or you're given certain interventions and then that means that you're on a clock essentially um, and things like that. So I thought, great, I'll have the induction. I'll know when my baby comes. I think before you become a mother as well, I hear this a lot, it's like this idea that, you know, you've lived your life fairly in on your own terms. You've been very much in control of most things. And so the idea of sort of letting your baby just come spontaneously for a lot of women I think is like really sort of foreign. Um, mm. So for me it was like exciting that I could have a bit of control over you know, where my baby was going to come and things like that. So I was excited. Um, I went in on Boxing Day <laughs> to be induced. Um, wow. And, yeah, so um, interestingly, I'm not sure why they booked me then because, like I said, I was only 41 weeks. So it was a bit odd to me that they didn't, not odd to me, but interesting that they booked me in on Boxing Day when they've already got a quite a, like a low number of staff. So anyway, (laughs) that happened. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, went in for the induction and pretty much just very, very classic story, cascade of interventions. I was given um, the cervidil to start contractions or to sort of, you know, wrap in my cervix overnight and then put on the syntocin and drip, water's broken, just the whole suite of, you know, uh, interventions and contractions were so incredibly um, overwhelming back to back, no break. Um, I was yeah, incredibly vocal, didn't really know how to handle handle them. I did handle them for about six to eight hours and then I was basically offered an epidural, which I didn't actually want, but the midwife said to me, um, oh, well, you've got a long while let, yet, love. So, you know, um, very, yeah, very um, not at all encouraging and supportive. Um, and so, yeah, had the epidural and then classic sort of case of baby not handling the Sinto and given the option of a cesarean, which I took because it was basically, it was all very calm. It wasn't sort of an emergency situation, but it was very much, oh, well, your baby's sort of having D-cells. So basically, what do you want to do? Like, do you want to keep going? Because if you do, um, you know, we don't really know what will happen and we're all here ready to basically take you into theater. We can, we can have your baby out in half an hour. It was four o'clock by this point. So, you know, you can imagine that they were probably all about to go home and it was just convenient to book in, you know, the last cesarean of the, the or the last, yep. yeah, very convenient, especially boxing day. Mm. Like, you know, everyone wants to go yeah. home to their family and whatnot. So yeah, I had the cesarean and interestingly enough, it was a fairly, it was, I had gone from this out of control, incredibly painful, incredibly frightening situation 
to a very calm cesarean. I did, I definitely felt like it was an out-of-body experience. I felt very disconnected from myself, sort of like I was watching it happen, which I think is such a common thing that people talk about with a cesarean because it's, you don't, you're not really connected. I mean, some people have great, you know, gentle cesareans and things like that. So not taking away from that, but if it is unplanned, you're very, you can be very disconnected from yourself and you don't have any control. Um, You're lying there, you're paralyzed, you know, from the waist down, sometimes higher up, sometimes from the neck down, and you're sort of at the mercy of the doctors really. So yeah, it was, as far as cesareans go, fairly straightforward, but yeah, still still, um, yeah, not pleasant in the grand scheme of things. And, um, I was separated from my baby, which is definitely one of the biggest, yeah, one of the, the, the saddest parts of the story, um, because they didn't have the staff for skin to skin, uh, is what they told me. Um, well, they didn't actually prepare me for that. It sort of just happened. And then it was only in hindsight that I found that out. So baby was um, bundled up, taken away. Uh, My husband took her up to the ward and I was in recovery for about an hour. And I had uh, what was able to go back up to the ward and see her and the midwife offered to help with breastfeeding, which we did. And I had a very difficult experience breastfeeding. Um, I think I definitely attribute it to so long in hospital as well as my milk took five days to come in so it was that as well as the fact that um it was obviously in hospital I'm sure a lot of people can relate um you don't get the best advice (laughs) from the midwives Mm. it's very much um you know every midwife has a different opinion um and they're you know as I mentioned before like not don't have a huge amount of staff and resources and things like that so you feel you can feel quite unsupported. I was in there for four days. I actually asked to go home um, and I wasn't really doing well with breastfeeding. In the end, she had quite a severe case of, um, I believe, breast trauma, like breast refusal, refused to to go on essentially, would cry every time I tried to feed her. And so after six days, about three days or two days at home, I ended up going to formula. Um which really stayed with me, um, the grief of that stayed with me for a really long time. Um, and it was really hard. Those first few days, I feel like you can sort of think about six days in the grand scheme of things doesn't seem long, but for every feed to be so traumatic, every feed, you know, I was trying to, you know, put her onto the breast and she would scream and cry and sort of turn her head away and then I would get stressed and cry and it lasted like 40 minutes of trying to do that and she would get a tiny bit but she was losing a bit of weight and and things like that and I think at that like first a lot of first-time mums you know you don't necessarily know the support you've got or the support that potentially is available um and so, yeah, I sort of didn't seek any support or anything like that. I just kind of thought, okay, well, I'll just go to formula. And there was a lot of relief from that, but initially, um, and I was able to start enjoying her and she was really um, wonderful, wonderful Bubsy. I mean, everyone's baby is wonderful, but 
she was just a <laughs> joy and we spent many mm. hours, you know, cuddling, contact napping, um, yeah, beautiful times after that. So I think initially it was this real relief that the responsibility was kind of gone from that, um, but long term it really stayed with me, which kind of led to the reason why I, um, yeah, went down the road that I did eventually. <laughs> Do you mean with mm. the VBAC or with the dual yes. work? Yes. No, no, oh, well, I guess both, but definitely initially <laughs> the VBAC, yes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, oh, I'm sorry that that was, yeah, that, that was hard for you, that breastfeeding period. Yeah, thank you. It's, um, yeah, it's all too common, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the guilt that mothers hold around it as well is insane. Mm. Mm. I know. Yeah, it's awful. Mm. Yes, mm. definitely need more support around that for sure. Mm, agreed, a hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. Mm. And so, yeah, we'll dive onto your your VBAC story then. Can you tell us about how that experience was for you? How were you feeling when you conceived again, and what kind of steps did you take? during that pregnancy to prepare for your VBAC? So it's a bit of a funny story. Um, I actually, so I got pregnant by surprise. Um, didn't expect mm. the pregnancy <laughs> to happen, but we were very excited. So there's How just... How was your daughter under, when that happened? She was 13 months. So there's okay. just... Yep. Just they're just under two years apart. We were sort of planning on waiting another year. So anyway, that's fine. <laughs> I always wanted my kids close together, that so happens. it wasn't. A, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I always wanted my kids close together, so I wasn't. Um, yeah, it was really exciting. So um, yeah, and that's right. You sort of have to. Things happen for a reason. So I um, actually, funnily enough, the reason I say it's a funny story is because I went back to that same hospital. And I decided to plan a repeat cesarean originally. So I went back to the hospital and spoke to, I think, the, the booking in midwife or whatever the process is and said, like, obviously they knew my history and things like that. And so they asked me what I wanted to do. And it was always pretty much repeat cesarean. And I think it is really a testament to the the responsibility that mothers hold for what happens to them in birth. I basically thought that um, I couldn't handle birth or couldn't handle labor and birth. I thought that my body obviously didn't really work properly. And, you know, mm. coupled with the issues I had breastfeeding, um, it kind of makes sense. My body didn't birth the baby um, the way it was supposed to and it didn't feed the baby the way it was supposed to which I didn't identify at the time consciously, but yes, it definitely was, was there. And so I think I thought that, well, I can avoid all that pain and, and, you know, um, and negativity essentially. Um, if I book a repeat cesarean, I'll have control. And I think that's one of the big things too, is like reclaiming that control that you feel like you lost. Um, so yeah. But I always knew that I wanted to breastfeed this baby. So I I saw an obstetrician um, and sort of just went along to the appointments. Everything was going well. Again, very straightforward pregnancy. And then I had a 24-week appointment at the hospital with a midwife because it was every 
every second appointment was with a midwife and every other one was with a obstetrician because it was a, a prior cesarean. And I asked this midwife, so I really want to breastfeed this time. What, like, I, I really want to have skin to skin. And I, I must have done enough research at that point to know that skin to skin was important to breastfeeding. And I sort of, I definitely had a bit of I, I knew enough to know that my cesarean didn't help things essentially. But all I knew at that point was that because I was separated from my baby, that must have been what the problem was. So I ended up, uh, yeah, I asked, can I have skin to skin? And in that appointment, um, anyone with fragmented public hospital care knows that they have five minutes basically. <laughs> so she pretty much dismissed my fears and said, Oh, you'll be like, well, first of all, she said, no, we cannot do skin to skin um, in for cesareans. And, but don't worry, you'll be fine. Plenty of cesarean mothers breastfeed. You won't have an issue. You'll be right, essentially. So obviously, you know, that was my first real, that was the first moment that I started questioning what care I was receiving, because obviously she didn't have enough time to you know, listen to my fears and and really hear me and validate what I was saying and things like that. So this was during the first lockdown, I believe. Oh, maybe the second lockdown. Yeah, second lockdown in New South Wales. So my husband, Joel, wasn't able to come in with me. Um, so he was in the car park. And I remember <laughs> walking out of that appointment, sitting in the car and saying, I think I want to be back <laughs> because... I obviously knew enough to know that a vaginal birth would mean that I would be able to have skin to skin. And I must have known what a VBAC was at that point. And I think, I'm not sure what it was, but it was just this one little sort of, yeah, this one thought that that sort of came to me. And my husband, Joel, is a theatre nurse. Um, and so he, at that point, had only really ever seen birth as um, a cesarean. He hadn't really, or very, um, like, assisted instrumental birth, essentially, is, is all he'd seen. But those were rare. It was generally cesareans. Um, and the hospital that he works at does a lot of cesareans, which I think a lot of them, a lot of them do, but definitely this one from, from his experience. And so, but he was very supportive of a VBAC. He said, yep, well, you should like, like look into it and, and see what you think. So I started researching and I'm one of those people that can get a little bit hyper fixated, hyper, hyper focused on things. So I started looking into VBAC and I think I must have looked up like some kind of hypnobirthing education or something like that. And it just led me down this road that ended up in phys physiological birth, which I think like a lot of people going on that VBAC journey, the education come to that place because it's so far removed from the cesarean and often people really want to get to a place that's so different from their first birth. And that's not to say everyone wants a physiological birth that has a VBAC, but it tends to be a very common trend. <laughs> um, so I, yeah, so I started looking into um, VBAC, physiological birth, what I could do to essentially have the best chance of that. And um, I was listening to VBAC Birth Stories podcast and all the stories that really resonated with me 
were actually um, home births <laughs> because mm. of just the way that, you know, women were left alone, let physio- physiology and the hormones and everything do what needs to be done um, to allow you to birth in basically, yes, an undisturbed physiological way. And and not only that, but just the trust that is required from not only the woman herself, but from the care provider to allow them, yeah, to to do what their body is made to do. So it really resonated with me. I think it was just like that, the yeah, the the blissful, it just seems so blissful being in your own home. Um, and so I looked into home birth. <laughs> and so by 28 weeks or 27 and a half weeks pregnant, so three and a half weeks had gone by since this appointment, I was pretty much convinced I wanted to have a home birth. So I went from planned cesarean to home birth after cesarean. <laughs> Um, and it took a bit of convincing with my husband because he, as I said, had only seen surgical birth. So, um, and high risk and things like that. So he was a bit, um, yeah, he had some questions and some doubts and what if something goes wrong and and things like that. But I ended up, um, getting a private midwife who, somehow had a space for me, which at the time I didn't realize was essentially like, uh, a unicorn situation because generally they book up very quickly. So she just happened to have a spot available and, um, she came to our house and had like an hour or two appointment with us, just explaining, uh, how she worked and what she would essentially bring and what it would look like. And she's also um, an emergency, well, at the time was an emergency nurse. So she and my husband really clicked and sort of he really, uh, she alleviated a lot of his concerns. So that was awesome. And yeah, I um, planned, was planning my home birth and um, Mm -hmm. I ended up, yeah, I know. So huge, huge shift, um, which is, yeah, a lot of people are so surprised by because I feel like a lot of people that plan a home birth after cesarean like leave the hospital and say that's what I'm having (laughs) leave the hospital the first Mm. time so um yeah it was a huge shift um interestingly I did have um she was actually breech at 37 weeks um so yeah which was interesting um and fairly rare considering my first was head down from like 28 weeks so we ended up discussing it, my midwife and and us. And um, she said, look, I'm not comfortable supporting a breach home birth at this stage. So basically you'd have to go to Westmead. Westmead's obviously one of the hospitals in New South Wales that offers breach vaginal birth. So that was what we would have had to do. But I ended up opting for um, an ECV, so external cephalic version, where you go to the hospital and they manually turn the baby from the outside. And so I went in and did that 37 weeks and it was successful and they generally have about a 50% success rate. So I was very much, yeah, yeah, I sort of just had trust that it would work. And I was, I think because I was so, I was at peace with the option of a breech vaginal at a hospital because by this point I had done so much education informing myself about birth I really trusted my body at this stage and I thought if if that's what I'm meant to do then I'll do it so 
that was pretty much those two like pathways. But um, at that stage, I ended up having the ECV was successful. And yeah, and then I ended up going into spontaneous labor at uh, 39 plus six and mm. had her on my due date <laughs> wow. overnight. So it's like yeah, 3% yeah. of babies or something, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, she was. Wow. She did all the things she was supposed to do. Bless her. Mm-hmm. Um, Go girl. So yeah, we. I know, I know. We. Um, mm-hmm. I went into labour, and then um, it was thirty six hours in total of labour. So it was very long. Um, mm-hmm. And I had my midwife, bless her, come and go three times. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And. Because I think as well, a lot of uh, a lot of people don't necessarily realise that a VBAC, depending what happened with your first birth, but a VBAC is often kind of like a first vaginal birth. Because um, I did, mm-hmm. I think for the first one, I got to three or four centimetres or something. And so I think because I'd, I had gotten to that point and I'd laboured, I was under this false sense of security that my labour would be quite quick. And my mum's had two quick, two, two quick labours. So I thought, oh, well, that'll be me. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't bother hiring a doula um, because I thought, oh, well, I've got my midwife, I'll be fine. Um, and, yeah, anyway, <laughs> in hindsight, a doula would have been amazing because it was a marathon. But, it, it, yeah, it was it was amazing. It was, even though it was a real, um, a test, really tested me, I got to about, it would have been 20 seven hours or something. So it would have been about midday the second day because I went into labor at 7am. I woke up with contraction. So a little bit unusual there too. Mm. And I got, yeah. And I got to 27 hours and I started getting those real crises of confidence. Like, I don't think I can do this or not even, I don't think I can do this, but I feel I'm really worried. I'm going to give up is what I kept saying. I really need something. And I think it was just that trust that I had in my body at that point that I knew that I could do it if I had support. I wasn't saying I can't do it. I was saying I need something to be able to do this, which was extra support. And so interestingly enough, my midwife actually, her other client went into labor the same day, which is super unusual because they usually only take about two a month. Um, two due dates a month. Yeah, well, so yeah, she, yes. So she ended up sending it back up midwife to support me, um, essentially in like a doula role. Um, and so, yeah, anyway, so when she came, it was just like, it was on pretty much. And, um, I actually look back at my birth notes and I had four, I had three contractions in 10 minutes consistently that were a minute each, like in length at 4 a.m. that morning and she didn't she wasn't born until 7 30 that night so I have to like really just pat myself on the back <laughs> for handling mm, that intensity of labor for so long yes so because long. I think you sort of I know you sort of forget you go mm. oh like you know I handled them oh yeah they were they were intense and yes like I did sort of lose a bit of confidence and then I look back at those notes and I'm like actually I handled that like that's a lot to handle for that long mm-hmm. and they didn't let up. They were pretty consistent that whole time, um, which I think is another reason why I just didn't ever lose faith that the baby was coming and everything was was um, 
going well and, and progressing. Um, I just, yeah, like I said, needed that support. And I think that's something that is so wonderful about home birth is that leaving the woman alone in her safe space allows her to connect to her intuition so beautifully that there wasn't, like I obviously had the midwife come, like I think it must have been mid-afternoon or something the second day and do, you know, some uh, intermittent Doppler monitoring, but I just knew that everything was fine. I, um, you know, the contractions were consistent. I was moving around. I was able to, you know, get in the pool, get on the toilet, get in the shower, get in the hallway, <laughs> which a lot mm-hmm. of the progression happened in the hallway on the rebozo. Um, but yeah, pretty much just, you know, you hear other women's stories about home birth where they, they know something's not quite right. And so that's when a transfer can happen. And it's just like, well, that is why it is such an amazing option for so many women, because it allows us to sort of really tap into that knowing of if nothing's wrong and everything's going well, or something is wrong without being interfered with, or, you know, your space disturbed or, um, you know, people coming in and lights being turned on and things like that, where of course it would be so difficult to tap into that intuition in those instances. So yeah, I'm definitely a huge advocate for home birth, obviously. (laughs) I'm um, on the committee for home birth, New South Wales. So (laughs) yes, sorry if that comes through, but, um, but yeah, um, but mainly just about women's autonomy and choice, like, you know, just that, that freedom to choose, to choose whatever, you know, makes mm-hmm. them feel safe is just like so important. Um, but yeah, so had, had the baby 7.30 at night and yeah, it was absolutely amazing. I was able to, um, yeah, she sort of, her head came out and was in the pool for about three minutes until the next contraction came, just sitting there bobbing away in the water. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and yeah, and then the next contraction came and pulled her on my chest and in the water and um, in the pool. And, yeah, I was able to sit there and hold her and just soak in that, like, intense oxytocin high, which you just cannot describe. It just, you, you sort of go on another level. It's just so intense. Um, and, yeah, beautiful. Yeah, I was there with my, my husband was crying and everyone was just like oh my god you did it after that long and it's a v-back and um you know yeah it was um it was a gorgeous beautiful beautiful little sort of cocoon of support and you know encouragement and and everything like that so yeah it was amazing (laughs) oh oh, wonderful thank you I feel emotional listening to you talk about it (laughs) (laughs) it's definitely it's a story I just love, I love, love, love to tell. And I love when people mm. ask, you know, oh, did you have a home birth? And I said, yeah, after cesarean. And yeah, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. And yes, it was like intense. Like it was so intense. And, you know, there were times when I didn't know if I could, I could necessarily do it. But um, I look back and all I can say it was, was that it was amazing. And I think that that is just because, I had a complete autonomy and tr- so much trust in myself and my body. And that's just, I can only attribute that to 
just how much I informed myself and empowered myself, um, mm-hmm. which is just so important in a VBAC journey because, you know, if you're going into hospital or even if you are home birthing, but if you're going into hospital especially, you need to be empowered, I think, to really trust yourself and know what is right for you and be prepared to stand up for yourself. And, you know, if, if, if having a fight sounds like really unappealing to you, which fair enough, um, to get what you <laughs> want, then that support team is so important. Um, Mm-hmm. and people mm-hmm. that really believe that you can do it and have no doubt in their mind. And that's what my private midwife was for me and my husband, of course, but just that real, like, of course you can do it. Like there's no question. It just really allowed me to tap into that myself. Yeah. 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 And it's so interesting that you say that about the feeling like you would have to fight because I, went back to the public hospital that I birthed at with my first cesarean birth. And I just Mm. more and more through listening to stories as well, I really felt that um, I was going to have to like fight the system, which probably isn't the Mm. best way to think about it, but that's how I was really feeling. And that at every turn Mm -hmm. there was going to be these little things that were dropped in there. So yeah, we decided, we've decided to have a home birth as well. Oh, Um, amazing. So so, yeah. (laughs) So it's so great to hear your story. And actually I think Mm. like literally six out of eight people, maybe five or six out of the eight people that I have sharing on this uh, little experiences episodes had home births after cesareans. (laughs) So (laughs) I think a a lot of people really really do realize, um, yeah, how, like where they do feel safe and that's where it comes down to where they personally feel safe, but where they feel that their bodies are going to be able to open and for that physiological birth to really, to really come in there. So yeah, Mm. so lovely to hear your story. (laughs) Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting you say about so many, um, people, having planned HBACs because I think home birth after cesarean, um, I think Mm -hmm. because like I was sort of um, mentioning before, it's I think the VBAC journey is really about reclaiming your power and I think it it sort of almost naturally goes down that path of home birth or just considering, you know, your own independent support if it's a private midwife or a doula because it really is about having to trust yourself because yeah like we said like feedback often there is that real that real sort of I don't want to say the word fight but you Mm. know people questioning you and not just care providers but you know family and friends questioning you because it is um it's not the norm I think only 12 I think it's like 12 or 18 percent of women that have had a previous cesarean go on to have a VBAC or plan a VBAC. Mm, um, yeah, yeah. And so it's not the norm. And that's really uncomfortable sometimes to be going against the grain. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and I think that, yeah, I think that it is really about tapping into that, like I said before, you know, your own knowing of yourself and, like, your own confidence. And that's something that obviously is such a journey in motherhood anyway. <laughs> so you're sort of mm. having to do that as well as everything else. So, yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh. Thank you so much, Georgia, for sharing your beautiful birth stories with us. It's been so lovely to speak to you. No worries. Thank you so much for having me.
And all the best with your um, home birth after cesarean. I can't wait to hear how it goes. <laughs> yes, I'll have to. Um, hopefully I'll be applying to be on your podcast <laughs> in um, like six yes, months' time. I love it. <laughs> yes, amazing, amazing. Please do. <laughs> yes, fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you all enjoyed this episode. I certainly loved listening to all these beautiful, empowering birth stories. And I thank you so much to all three of the beautiful women who have shared their stories with us today. As I mentioned earlier, I will share in the show notes where you can listen to each of these guests' stories in full. So to the Australian VBAC stories podcast i'll pop a link for that which georgia co-hosts and as well as rachel is going to be sharing her story on there i'll also share the link to Catherine's australian birth stories episode i'm going to be sharing some photos of each of the guests that shared today so make sure that you check out our instagram at definitely baby podcast to see those and to keep up to date with everything that's happening If you've loved the episode or any of our episodes, please do leave us a positive review wherever you're listening. Next week, we have a wonderful episode with Dr. Hazel Keedle on the importance of language around feedback and choosing a truly supportive care provider. So keep your ears and eyes out for that one and I will see you then.